one thing that I really have myself been on a process and journey and learning about is really how much of how we approach parenting, how much we approach the messages we tell our kids are really centered on a history of uh, oppression and racism that really I was blind to for the majority of my life. Have you noticed that there is so much more racial diversity in our TV shows and commercials and movies lately? I genuinely feel like the quickest way to change a culture is through entertainment because that's what we're sitting in front of all the time. We have so much further to go, but it's good to see broader representation. But did you ever stop to think about how many cultural biases we have towards other cultures and races that we don't even think about, we don't even notice? It's a lot. For instance, I'm so, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this. My six-year-old daughter was describing someone at her school and she couldn't remember his name. And she pulled back her eyes and said, I think he's probably someone from China. Boy, I was cringing at how early it begins. And also, it was a great opportunity to explain to her some more appropriate and respectful ways to describe him. But honestly, when I think about me growing up, I must have been so freaking offensive. Not because I was mean-spirited, but because it was sort of socially normal. And now we hear about how damaging these micro and macro aggressions and stereotypes are. It's a changing landscape. And we know in today's politically correct world, we are probably never going to get it right. But I did want to understand where the line is and maybe have some better ways to approach race. So I found the coolest guest, Gabriela Liva-Stein, PhD. Isn't that cool how I said that? (laughs) I probably said it wrong. She is currently the Vice President of Programming for the Society of Research on Adolescents, and she serves on the Ethnic Racial Issues Committee of the Society for Research on Child Development. I know that's a mouthful. Her research uses developmental psychopathology and cultural ecological frameworks to investigate the impact of culturally relevant factors on the development of psychopathology for ethnically diverse samples. That is directly from uh, her bio, and uh, I apologize, it's a lot of big words, but what I love about it is that she is truly a lifelong academic, and I feel like I'm not doing her justice as she has so many accolades, but we talk deeply today around rethinking race and how we strive towards a more inclusive society that respects and honors each other's races, and also, what is the right thing to say and ask? And I caught myself in this conversation, you'll hear, I caught myself in my own biases during these conversations and probably offended her here <laughs> everywhere. But I loved having the opportunity to break it down with an expert right on the spot because I think we're all kind of guilty of, of trying to figure out where the line is. And that is why I'm so excited to bring this to you. It's definitely an evolving landscape. And speaking of an evolving landscape, have you subscribed or followed this show yet? Please take a moment to do that now. And also, while you're busy subscribing, go to allisonhair.com and leave me your email. I send out weekly emails that are deeply personal, but they are magically super brief and useful and sometimes even funny. 
Lastly and honestly, the most valuable uh, and most valuably, I don't even know if that's a word, culture change is an inside job is what I'm learning through this podcast and through these meaningful conversations. It starts with you and we're always wondering where is our place in the story? And as things start to shift and retool in your own lives, sharing these episodes are where you start to make seismic shifts when the people around you start to have their lights turned on too. So won't you take a moment and share this one? I'd especially love if you sent this to your racially diverse friends and see if Dr. Gabby is on the money here. Here's my chat with Dr. Gabby Levis-Stein. So today we're, we're talking all about race. We're talking all about intergenerational trauma or even ancestral trauma. I don't know if you know, is there a difference between ancestral trauma and intergenerational trauma? That's interesting. No, I actually haven't heard of, of a big distinction of it, but I can see how that could happen, right? That ancestral trauma is something that, that, wow, wow, we've carried for generations and generations. While generational, I think really harkens back to specific traumatic events that we've experienced before. Yeah. So as we talk through reparenting, reparenting ourselves, maybe rewiring some of the stories that we've heard, um, or have we, uh, maybe the stories that we've created or the adaptations that we have used to kind of protect ourselves that as we grow older may not serve ourselves well. And so you really live in the world of race, of um, uh, equity and inclusion, and especially in the Latinx uh, community, and you have like a zillion different degrees, and really, um, really, really unbelievable uh, background and track record on it. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on where we are today from a cultural perspective, and where you know, like, what is bugging you? What's under your skin right now? <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, one thing that I really have myself been on a process and journey and learning about is really how much of how we approach parenting, how much we approach the messages we tell our kids are really centered on a history of, of oppression and racism that really I was blind to for the majority of my life. And really, as, as I've started to parent my kids and give messages as to why it's important to do well in school or why we work hard or where we get our food from or a lot of just, I realized how replete these messages are with things around picking yourself on the bootstraps and the American dream and really the idea that anyone who can work hard can be successful. But in reality, that's not true, right? There's many systems of oppression that really interfere with people being able to do that, to, to that not all our bootstraps are the same. And I think one of the pieces that, I've been really clear about as a parent is that that as we give these messages, then what is what attributions do your kids make when they see other kids that aren't successful, right? Mm. When they see kids that mm. aren't doing well in school, when they notice poverty, right? They might start thinking, well, they must not have done that. They must not have worked hard. They must not have tried their hardest. Um, and so as we think about just immigrant populations, or we think about even populations that have other kinds of adversity that can interfere it, with them being able to do this, I've been really clear on thinking about how to parent my kids to make attributions that that's not something that we all have access to. And so how do something, we do that? Yeah, so that's something. So I'm a mom of two as well. And, you know, these conversations come up all the time. And I never know if I'm doing this right. You know, for instance, we uh, we live in a um, 
a very diverse part of Atlanta, so very diverse city, and there are homeless encampments very close to our house. We pass them all the time. And every single time when I pass a homeless person begging and I just try not to make eye contact, you know, and just move forward. And sometimes I will, you know, and just that pull in my chest of like, oh, I failed that one. Like, what is the right thing to do? You know, and my kids will ask, well, why don't they have a home? Why yeah. where, can we bring them home with us? You know, like it, it is so complicated. So from your lens, where do you go from there? Yeah, I actually have a very similar experience with my own son. And when he, we, you know, drove by a homeless person, he said, why can't we just bring them home? And they and yeah. crying at the idea that he didn't have a home. And what would that mean to not have a home? And I think sometimes we become so jaded, right? We get so used to, yes, well, some people are homeless and some people aren't. And as adults, we don't realize sort of what that is, that that piece. So I think the right thing to do is really invite a conversation of, with curiosity with your child and to talk around the different kinds of components that go into some people not having, um, not being able to have a home because of maybe mental health issues or substance use issues, or having a society in which the safety net isn't there to provide that kind of support and um, that that folks might need, um, that they may not have, like, you know, speaking of generational, right, generational wealth, even the notion of generational wealth, I think the more we start really thinking around who had access to generational wealth, who has access to a safety net is a really important kind of conversation. And even though kids are young, you can really think about how to invite that conversation in a, in a developmentally appropriate way, you know, by saying things like, you know, like just being very honest, like, you know, not everyone has had these opportunities or different people have different kinds. Their grandparents did this and your grandparents did that. And or and our grandparents were able to potentially move, you know, <laughs> whatever that might look like. But I think we always are scared. We think kids don't understand. And we sort mm-hmm. of just sort of pass on those conversations. And kids know a lot. Kids have a lot of insight. Kids have a lot of curiosity. And we teach them what subjects are not okay to talk about by sort of a, a like sort of brushing them off. And I think we really would do serve our children well by really just engaging them in honest conversations that involve a lot of questions and not just um, like answers, if that, if that makes sense. It does. So I'm thinking about, you know, when you say, well, somebody might have mental health issues or they might not have had the same opportunities that you might have or somebody else might have. The danger for me comes in is, is stereotypes. Yes. And I believe that there are healthy stereotypes and some yes. that are not. And, you know, I've heard things that my kids have said and assumptions that they've said because of what they've seen. And I'm like, oh my God, I did not teach that, you know, but <laughs> it is, right. it is, it is stereotyping. So how do you, how do you invite healthy stereotypes that are helpful to us? Or, you know, is there, a, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that is such a great question because you're right. I think that is part of the danger. And one of the things we want to make sure to talk about is that diversity is to say there's lots of different reasons why this might be. And there's lots of different um, folks that could fall into homelessness for lots of different reasons. And there's not one story that's right. And there's not one experience that has led to everyone to be in this. And and one thing that we should always be thoughtful about is that. So I think giving those multiple types of reasons or multiple types of examples 
roles. Um, and that's sometimes really countering stereotypes. So for example, if, you know, in particular, there's like a racial ethnic makeup of, of a group that's different than your own to explore that and look at just statistics. Cause sometimes that even is a really helpful thing to look at, mm. um, to say what percentage of, of the homeless population is X, Y, or Z. Let's look this up. How do we do this? How do we learn more about a topic? And I think sometimes we always think as parents, we have to have the answers. And I think part of it is helping our kids develop the tools, right? And say, hey, I don't know the answer to this. Let's figure this out together. Let's find this out. And I think sometimes like showing that, again, that curiosity is a way that can really help have kids sort of develop those tools so they challenge those stereotypes and even sometimes acknowledging those stereotypes that we might have um, and and where they might come from. And I think it's just being really open about them. Um, I think part of where we get into trouble is we judge people for having these stereotypes. And it's important just to acknowledge our society is full of them. And so that, mm -hmm. that a way to, to, to do that is to be able to identify when they happen to then be able to challenge them um, in, a, in a way that with data. So I'd be curious to think through as an adult, as somebody who um, may have experienced racism, may have experienced um, assumptions, stereotypes that have put them in a box. And as mm -hmm. we're thinking about unwinding that from a societal perspective, it all starts from a person, right? Mm -hmm. So I was talking to a girlfriend of mine in preparation to talk to you, and she is a Latina. And I said, you know, I'm not as familiar, like, I understand uh, Holocaust. I understand um, some of the gener intergenerational trauma that happens uh, with Holocaust or Black mm -hmm. community, but I'm not as familiar with Lat mm -hmm. Latinx. And she said, I said, what is your experience with it? And she said, oh, my God, she has four young boys. Mm -hmm. And she said, so many people, because, you know, our last name is sounds very ethnic, that um, people assume that my kids speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. And it is very confusing mm -hmm. for my son because they don't. They can kind of understand it, but they're not thinking through that. And I'm wondering, what are the things that we are doing that are racist that we may not be aware of or may not be conscious of? Yeah, that's a good example of one sort of this idea of what's called the perpetual perpetual foreigner stereotype that happens again for both um, Latinx and Asian populations, right? This idea of where country are you from and you're like, where are you? And that there's some exoticization of that of that group, I think is, is one of the first, or assumptions of nativity status, assumptions of you were born here and this must be your experience, right? My, um, one of my, my relatives who lives in the States and has, you know, has been here, um, it was assumed like, oh no, when if you're going to be deported, like, right? So there's these mm. assumptions that are made and, and they came out of concern. It's like, oh, are you going to be deported? It wasn't like someone was trying to be mean. They really were worried about its deportation of, without considering the fact that most Latinx people aren't going to be deported. Most Latinx people are here and have been here for generations, right? So I think that there's that, that place is a, a place where sometimes, again, it, it seems like it's out of curiosity, um, but it can feel stereotypical, especially when assumptions are made about um, those kinds of pieces. Um, I think the other piece, I, I, I really appreciate your question about intergenerational trauma. And I would point readers, there's a beautiful book written by Reina Grande um, called The Distance Between Us that really talks about that generational trauma 
around the divide of a country and the distance between um, that the that she has with her her family and her parents and the intergenerational trauma from the extreme poverty that they had experienced and their own forms of social oppression. This book takes place in Mexico, but in, uh, I think that you see that in the literature, sort of that sort of the colonization, sort of the really the same kinds of processes we see in Black communities and sort of the really um, stripping of the indigenous protective processes that existed and stripping of those kind of religious kinds of connections. Um, but anyway, they, particularly around extreme poverty and how that leads to some parenting that's really potentially authoritarian with more sort of focus on discipline, more focus on that. That's some of the ways we see intergenerational trauma from a parenting perspective. Um as well, that I wanted to touch on based on your question. So that there is that kind of component of what does it mean to, to, to make, to immigrate as a parenting decision, right? But yet what costs that has to your family, right? If you're separated. And so you're doing it for the best of your children, but at the same time, it could cost lots of things around your relationship with your child and that what cost that has. And if you're that child growing up and trying to parent your kids when you don't have that kind of, um, it could be really, really challenging. So my, my father is from Lebanon. And so I'm one of seven kids. And I have a brother named Jamil who looks like me. And he has um, his entire life, you know, when he walks into a job interview, like he's not gotten called back. He's had people look at him like, Oh, I wasn't expecting you to look like you, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and he'd have to like show his ID and say, no, that is really my name. Jamil means beautiful in Arabic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, it's interesting to see how mm -hmm. much goes, how much of those, um, infractions that happen mm -hmm. innocently, in a lot of ways, but can really impact us. That's right. And That's, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd be curious of your own experience. You, I, I'm yeah. assuming, I, I don't even know. Can I ask you? Are you, I'm assuming you're a Latinx woman. Yes, you're, I am. Gabriela yes. Livas. Yes, that's right. <laughs> No, and as, and I, yes, I think that that's a huge component of who's that my some yes, I immigrated from Mexico and I was four with my family, my my but I moved here, you know, my 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 story isn't typical in that my dad had a PhD and we moved here to be um in you know part of um, a corporation he was working for, but people assume a certain history related to my, you know, being here and what does it mean to be Mexican, assume different things about, you know, my, how my immigrant status. And I, for a long time, was an American citizen. I became an American citizen when I was in my twenties. And then I married a Jewish man, which is where Stein comes from. So I find people find it very confusing um, in terms, and I'm also white um, or very light skinned. White now presenting. I have lots White presenting is right. right. My my fam my sister is much darker mm. skin than I am, and so you know that's another component of it that people don't. So yes, those are the kinds of ways in which people assume um, different things about my experiences, whether it's why I immigrated here, how I immigrated here, but also around sort of the you know I, I remember once a neighbor told me they're like oh you you're the, you've like really like holding me up as like you've made it you're like the epitome of what we should all strive to do, and I was like hey first of all that's the exceptional person. Well, she again was meaning it as a compliment, really was assuming a lot of things about my background that were not true. And so I think it's important that, that there's dangers in that for lots of ways, even if the things that she had assumed about my background were true, that that idea of something one being exceptional to come out of some um, scenarios, again, gives those messages, like you said, that 
seem benign, but really give messages of, of like what your worth is and who's considered what sort of group. Um, so I think it's an, a really important thing to just think through. Now, I also really think through around what privileges I'm given because I'm white passing, right? What privileges I'm given because people don't assume sort of different things about me just from looking at me versus my sister's experiences, which are different. Um, so I think that's the other thing that I have to do, the work I have to do for myself too. So I think we all have to sort of take stock in that and be really clear about what that has afforded me, right? So um, when I think about... It's so hard if I see somebody who is obviously half Asian, half, mm-hmm. you know, and I so want to ask, you know, what is your nationality? Yeah. There is a, a genuine curiosity. What is the proper way to ask those questions and be curious about each other? And I do think there is a beauty for the mixing, you know? Yeah, no, I think you're And right. I could have just done big racist things by saying well, that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's that that's yes. <laughs> it's it's so complicated. And I think part of it is entering it in a genuine way because it is like actually some of the work I do is on multiracial populations. Mm. And that is part of where that exotization and the sort of the, the I mean, in fact this just happened to my daughter the other day where someone was like, Oh, you like, oh, you're so beautiful because you're of mixed ancestry. Um and so that does give them a, a sort of this message of like, what does that mean in terms of like, um, you know, this exotization component. So that can be hard. But I agree that just wanting to learn about people's lives is part of how we connect as humans, right? So how do we do that? How do we connect? I think things, questions of like, oh, tell me about your upbringing or tell me, um, or, oh, what was, where, where did you grow up? I think is a good question. And I think like, oh, tell me about your parents. And there's ways that you can ask without really focusing on that and that that would come out, right? That that in the natural conversation, you would say, oh, well, my mom, blah, blah, blah. And my dad, blah, blah, blah or my but my mom and my mom or whoever it is that like how whatever your um upbringing is but i think i would focus more on asking questions that are more specific that then would pull out and bring those things out because i think i think the thing is for me is that like you asking or one of us asking that question isn't going to be you know isn't that big but imagine being asked that question every day right imagine being asked all the time where are you from and the message or or tell me about your like oh or you're so beautiful only because of this right like you might be beautiful for other reasons or what where's where other places does your beauty come mm. from so i think it's it's the imagining if that's the only thing you heard right and that's where i think for me i'm like oh, okay i can see how this I have to think about another way to say it. And and that being said, I've learned lots of things in my own life that I've said. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I really shouldn't say that. But it's only, it takes a while to realize those. But I wonder what the impact is from a person that is continually mm-hmm. asked those questions. Mm-hmm. What does it say to somebody? What is the mm-hmm. psychological impact? Yeah. Is so, it othering? Is it, it what is it? That's what exactly right. So it's it's othering. It's an invalidation of the identity that they might have. It's an essentializing, mm. right? It's an essentializing of this is this is what who you are and what you represent, as opposed to your whole sort of being that I, that I value you for this one thing that's unique about you. Um, and psychological and and what we know from the research is that it does have impacts on your identity formation. It does have impacts on how you see yourself, how you can um, sort of interact with others. So it does like those messages, continual messages like that does de- definitely does have an impact on sort of your sense of self, your your sense of understanding, um, your trust in others, your your connection with others. Um, and, and it can be, it, it again, it, it makes you feel othered. That's exactly a, a good way to put it. 
There's so much complexity around that because then I think of people who are really proud. So when you see a woman that's got black girl magic on yeah. her, you know, on her shirt and she's proud of it, you know, and I, I wonder about, you know, people who embrace their exoticism and love to talk about it because it allows them to speak about their heritage or share. There's so much complexity. I wonder from your studies, what is the best path to healing? Yeah. So I think the complexities are, are rich and you're right. The majority of people of color in our country are proud of who they are, are mm -hmm. proud of their heritage, want to share about their cultural um, heritage, are happy to talk with folks. And I think it's, it's, I think it's in the genuine curiosity that that's the most important component. Coming back to that original point I made at the mm -hmm. beginning, I think really engaging, seeing someone for their full humanity, I think is where um, that's the path forward is that that I see this about you, but I also see all these other things. So yes, you're Latina, but you also love art history and you also really like punk music <laughs> or you also like, you know, so that there is not an essentializing of like, oh, you're Latina. So you must really love to dance salsa and, you know, um, I don't know <laughs> what other stereotypes people might make. Right. So I feel like that's the place in which that you're embracing and, and then sort of saying like sharing what it, like asking, like, what does it mean? to you, but in a way, not the first question you ask, right, to establish that relationship, to establish that trust with someone, to show, to, to accept them for their full humanity first. And then that's, that leads to these really great conversations. We know from research that contact with people of other groups, that's what reduces those stereotypes we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier. So we know that's the best way to move forward. It's just doing it in a way where folks are on equal footing, where you're both sharing of your cultural selves and where you're both meeting with your full humanity. So one thing I think about a lot, there are a lot of areas in our nation that are very homogenous and mm. not, um, it isn't as easily accessible to meet other people of different cultures. And when mm -hmm. they do, they are very othered, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, is that a challenge or is it just the way that it is? You know, like I think the mm -hmm. way forward is culture. So, I mean, is, is what we see on entertainment. So if you look on commercials now, there are a lot of mixed race couples mm -hmm. now, and it's a lot more mixed. You'll see um, Indian women as leads where they never would have been there before. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is beautiful. But if you don't encounter people that don't look like you in real life, mm -hmm. is that a disadvantage or is it just the way that it is based on typically geography? Yeah, I think this is a, a huge difficulty that we all, that we know the U.S. is segregated. Schools are the most segregated they've mm. ever been in the history of our time, of our, even segregation. So segregation is a huge issue. Um, and I think it's important to really be mindful and thoughtful about how we engage in cultural learning about other groups. And again, this comes back to the point that you don't want it to come from, a, um, you know, like... Um, I'm here and you're there and I'm going to come visit and learn about you, but then come back to me, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but so, but I do think people will need to push mm. themselves to learn. And I think it is watching those shows that push the stereotypes that have tell stories. I really, I remember my daughter once said to me, you know, I really purposefully would select books for her to read and the library and stuff. And she eventually was like, mom, I'm, I don't want to read any more books about black people in slavery. And I'm like, you're <laughs> right, Lucia. That's not, that shouldn't be the only like, right. I, and I was so, 
right, right? I was so focused on, you know, just bringing books that I didn't really think about, wow, you really just want to read, you know, a story with a black heroine who's a ballet, you know, and, and is just having fun and living life. And it isn't about the, the one story that we tell. So I think that that's a really important part to do it, that we can do it. We just have to be really purposeful to not just focus on this one narrow experience of someone's culture. And we can do it through books and movies and documentaries. And there's lots of, we're lucky, right? Now we can do that. When we grew up, we, I had not, I had no mm -hmm. access to anyone. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I had a, you know, very few shows with people of color in it. So I think it's, I think we're very, we live in a time where we can push those boundaries because there's so much um, media available to us. I think that's so true too, as I think about you know, like not being able to see myself on the screen, what would mm -hmm. that feel like, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, being in society in that way where you're always a minority and, you know, the, the stereotypes that people may place on you based on that. It, it's an interesting, I'd, I'd be interested to learn more about what that looks like. So you uh, have done a lot of, of, training and studies on this. What are you seeing now? What are you seeing that's exciting in the culture? What are you seeing change? I think for me, what's really exciting is that people are really wanting to understand how to best um, raise their kids with an awareness of their own cultural upbringing and their cultural group. You know, back um, when this research started being done and you would ask people like, tell me what it means to you to be white. They'd be like, what are you even talking about? Like, I don't have no idea. There was not even a concept of that, like, right. Or in a concept of what that culture looked like or what whiteness meant. And what's so exciting to me is like, the way, I think we're at it's really important pivotal point in history where people are really, really trying to really think about that and understand that and think about how that impacts themselves and how they see themselves and their families and the decisions they make and, and I think one thing that is super exciting for me is that we can put a like start describing these things, start describing this process and really start thinking about why is it a problem to say we don't see race or we don't see color, because that really was not a helpful way to move past mm -hmm. racism. Um, but it's really to acknowledge sort of the systems of oppression that still exist, but also the the beauty and the resilience and the thriving that we see in communities of color and having access to those. So to me, that's what's most exciting is I think people are more open to a conversation right now. And what research is showing is that people are, are wanting to get these skills set, are wanting to have these conversations in more explicit ways. Um, and it, including immigrant populations, because for a long time, immigrant populations really focused on the cultural part of their heritage, but not as much on the what does it mean to live in, a, in the U.S. society, you know, that has really been built on racism. Um, so it's I think that to me, that's what's most exciting in the work right now, that people are wanting to, to learn how to be better parents around this. Yeah. So I wonder if the political landscape is actually helped mm. by shining <laughs> such a light on it. You know, like the, the vitriolic political division has actually well, been a blessing. There's, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I, blessing I, is a, word, a good word yeah. for this, but. I, I, I would call it, yes. I think a silver has shined lining. A light. Has shown a light. I think that's exactly right. I feel like, you know, for a long time, people felt we lived in a post-racial society where race didn't matter anymore. And really a lot of racism was more indirect or, or not felt or, you know, unseen, particularly by the majority white community. Black folks have said forever, you know, have not changed mm -hmm. their perspective on the matter. Mm. But I feel like you now see a shift in, in, in a white majority who's really starting to understand that. So I agree that that is... That has helped. And um, unfortunately, sometimes we just need those like shake 
worth shaking moments in history. And I feel like we had one in 2020 that mm-hmm. really shook a lot of people to their core in a way that's been, and that I think was on the heels of, of some of the political division. Good Lord. Aren't you right about that? What do you know that you wish other people could know? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I think as a, as a parent, I feel like one thing I, I feel like I've learned that I feel lucky through as a, as a clinical psychologist and a researcher is that we don't have to get everything right. Um, and that I feel like there's always a lot of pressure that we have to get everything right or that we worry about we're going to repeat the, the mistakes of the past. And I think what I really know is that I think as long as you engage in your child's innate curiosity and you are compassionate with yourself about sort of your goals and what you want to do and you're just willing to change and learn, that that's okay. And so I wish other people like were more generous with themselves as parents and and were more introspective mm. when they sort of said certain things, you know, sort of said, where did this come from and, and how can I change this um, and sort of be open to some of those um, and, and being curious, I think is the two places I would, I think, I, I think I've benefited from in terms of as, a, as an academic. I think you have said the word curiosity throughout this whole conversation and how much of a linchpin that is for growth and for healing. So I love mm. that. How can people find you if they want to uh, get to know you and your work more? Sure, they can find me. I have a website that describes some of the research that we do. It's CaminosLab.org. So you can feel find me. I'm on also University of North Carolina Greensboro's website in the psychology department. So folks can find me there and shoot me an email. Perfect. Thank you so much, Gabby. This was fantastic. Can you imagine the type of effort it takes to change deeply seated cultural biases in our world? Big thanks to Dr. Gabriela Levas Stein for dedicating her life's work to this very worthy evolution and for sharing her time and insight with us. I've linked her website she mentioned with her work, uh, CaminosLab.org, in the show notes. As for me, I hope you leave this episode with some thought-provoking topics to bring up and to have meaningful conversations in your own circles. Stay closer to me at allisonhair.com. Leave me your email there and get these weekly emails and episodes delivered directly to you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.